New Thinking Allowed, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is spiritual alchemy. With me is Robert Simmons. He is author of Earthfire, A Tale of Transformation, Moldavite, Starborn Stone of Transformation, Stones in the New Consciousness, The Book of Stones, and The Alchemy of Stones. Robert is based in New Zealand, and now I'll switch over to the internet interview. Welcome, Robert. It's a pleasure to be talking to you halfway across the world. Hi, Jeffrey. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me on today. You have a very interesting background as, as a Yale graduate, a jeweler, a purveyor of gems and stones and, and rocks, but also a deep student of spiritual alchemy, which is uh, uh, of great interest to me. I suppose it's worthwhile uh, to begin with to point out that the whole concept of spiritual alchemy was really most highly developed in the 20th century by Carl Jung. Yeah, that's really true. I mean, I've read that he basically rescued it from the ash heap of history, and he found it invaluable, as I've understood it. Um, he called it the link between the Gnosticism with which he resonated that was many centuries ago and modern psychology and the development um, of his psychology of individuation. As I read through your book, uh, The Alchemy of Stones, I was struck by a, a quote you referred to several times by, I think it's the 18th or 19th century poet Novalis, who talked about the yes. seat of the soul. Let, let's start there. All right. Yes, that quote is one of my favorites. And um, it is, the seat of the soul is where the inner world and the outer world meet. And where they overlap, it is at every point of the overlap. There's even another translation I use because I like it so much, which is that the seat of the soul is where the inner and the outer world permeate one another. And it is at every point of that permeation. And that is really the basis of my whole approach to spiritual alchemy and the alchemy of stones. Another important concept would be the uh, notion of the imaginal world. I've talked about it uh, on a number of other New Thinking Aloud interviews. The, the idea, I think, was most highly developed by the uh, French philosopher Henri Corbin. And uh, yes. he, he would say, and I think you emphasize this as well, there's a distinction between the imaginal and imagination. Yes, um, the way I would describe it is a distinction between the imaginal and the imaginary. Um, I equate the imaginary, and I think Corbin and Jung and other people who uh, go this direction think it that way too, that the imaginary is what we might call fantasy, which tends to orbit around the ego, and it's either its desires or its worries, whereas the imaginal is the realm of image. It's a place, it's that overlap that I call the seat of the soul, where the inner world and the outer world are joined. And that's the realm in which the, the joining um, shows up 
often ter- times in terms of images or of yeah symbols that we see inwardly. Well, and since you're really an expert on gemstones and minerals and 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 rocks and a, a wide variety of, of substances like that, and since alchemy talks about the philosopher's stone, let let's get into that. It, it's the philosopher's stone. I've always thought of it as a metaphor. It doesn't really refer to an actual stone, but I suppose you find in actual stones great power. Well, I do. And in fact, the whole thing that turned me on to this direction that I took in my life was an experience I had with a stone when I meditated with it. Uh, That stone was Moldavite, the one I'm wearing on my necklace. And that's a gem from outer space. And not to go in too far to that necessarily, what I wanted to say is that experience opened me up uh, into my own awareness of having a subtle body by opening up all of my chakras. Um, And I mean, I didn't know I had chakras until that happened. Um, It filled me also with bliss and a sense of illumination. So it got my attention in a big way. And it's those kind of experiences that seem to be things that many people have with stones that made me focus on the way that spiritual alchemy and that connection with stone energies overlap with one another. Another connection that you made in your book with Moldavite is with the uh, great hermetic work known as the Emerald Tablet, because Moldavite is colored uh, green like emerald. It is, yes. Um, Yeah, in fact, I'll just hold up another piece here that you might be able to see. Um, That shows the green color a little better than what's on my neck. But the, um, the Emerald Tablet, the Emerald Tablet, story is also connected with the Stone of the Holy Grail story. And in the Wolfram von Eschenbach version of the Grail story, the Grail was not viewed as a cup, but as a stone, and particularly an emerald that fell from the sky. So the ancients viewed almost all green stones or gemstones under the, under the generic term emerald. So something that was green colored and that somehow they may have understood intuitively came from the sky, fits what Moldavite actually is. And one little bit of that that's interesting to me too is that the grail legends come from the Celts who were originally from the area of what's now the Czech Republic rather than Great Britain. They migrated there, but presumably they took their myths with them. And the reason that's significant is because Moldavite is only found in the Bohemian Plateau of the Czech Republic. So that's the Holy Grail connection. And of course, the Emerald Tablet connection is that idea that the wisdom of alchemy was engraved supernaturally on this green stone. Um, and the Emerald Tablet is very famous and very enigmatic in terms of uh, how we interpret it. But it does contain the basis of um the Ouroboros, the feedback loop, and fractal geometry, which is as above, so below. My mentor, Arthur M. Young, I had the great privilege of living with him for a brief period of time and knowing him for, for many years. He, he was the author of the 
of, of the reflexive universe. And he studied spiritual alchemy after he completed his invention of the first commercially licensed helicopter. And one day he came to me and he said, what is the philosopher's stone? I said, I'm, I don't know. And, and he said, the philosopher's stone represents the obstacles that you face in life because that's what changes the lead in, in you into gold. Is, is confronting obstacles. I know in your journey, you talk about that as, as well, the many obstacles that one confronts on the spiritual path of alchemy. Well, that's true. And, and my own certainly has lots of those in it. Um, and, you know, in alchemy, in spiritual alchemy, they have the three basic stages, um, the Negredo stage, the Albedo stage, and the Rubedo which refer to the blackness, the whiteness, and the redness. And I'm sure you know this, but the Negredo stage is the beginning and the most difficult. And, you know, physically, it's where the beginning material is viewed as being chaotic and polluted and in need of a whole lot of um, purging and purification. But that's also true inwardly in spiritual alchemy. When we begin the path, the first thing that happens is everything that needs to be looked at, cleared, dealt with, and uh, brought to consciousness comes first. And it's most frequently, and I think Jung would say most fortunately, it's the things that are we consider the worst about us, that we may have thrown down into the basement to not have to think about. So they come up first because if alchemy is really going to happen in the psyche, we have to deal with what's genuinely there. And I faced that in terms of even physical illness that came up at the beginning of my writing of my book as something nobody could diagnose, but it ran its weird course. And then as I started opening up and getting clearer uh, inwardly, the illness kind of resolved itself. So this is one of those inner outer trend, my, what you would call it, um, things that match each other. I'm sure there's a better word, but, um, you know, in the albedo stage, this is when after you've done a lot of this purification and cleansing or facing things, there's a light that begins to dawn like you, and you may have a numinous experience of light. Um, and then eventually the light needs to be integrated into your whole life and in, into your earthly life. And Jung said, that means getting it into the blood. So that's the rubedo stage. And you know, in my book, we go through all those stages and make a lot of connections with them. Another uh, principle of alchemy, well, before I get into what I was about to say, uh, when you talked about your illness, I think you were referring to the idea of as above, so below, which is one of the great alchemical phrases engraved in the Emerald Tablet. Exactly that. You're right. And that seems to happen all the time. And in, in a sense, that underlies Jung's idea of synchronicity as well. Uh, and, you know, seeing synchronicities is, to me, part of spiritual alchemy. In other words, what Marie-Louise Marie von Franz called um, viewing experience through the eyes of imagination allows you to see both material reality and spiritual reality joined. And when that happens, you can see the spiritual powers at play in the natural world. So that also very much applies to one's own life. 
Well, and another principle, the one I was about to enunciate a moment ago, is, is the idea of the union of the opposites. The alchemist doesn't just uh, go towards uh, heaven and, and away from hell. The alchemist tries to embrace all of the opposites. Absolutely. And that's one of the things I've certainly learned is real. You know, my own um, spiritual life began at 18 years old when I had an experience that I wasn't looking for. I wasn't spiritual. And what occurred in very brief is that on a kind of dark night of the soul, I told my college roommate my most uh, frequent childhood dream, um, which showed me going down into a dark, frightening basement. And every time I dreamed it, a white horse would appear under me and carry me up into the sky. And uh, then I would always fall off. And when I woke up as a little child, I would be pretty freaked out, hypersensitive to sound and light. I told him that dream. I got nervous telling him that dream, even though I hadn't said anything about it for quite a few years. I went and looked in the, uh, I, I stood up and walked around the, the room and looked out the window. And then I did a double take because the very image of the horse from my childhood dream was there in the sky at that moment. I didn't know the word synchronicity then. And at 18 years old, to see my dream image in the actual world broke my worldview. It broke my idea that I even knew what reality was and frightened me a great deal. And in that moment, I called out, oh, God, help me. And the next moment, a little pop happened at the back of my head and my skull was filled with light and bliss and the absolute certainty in my own mind that I was touched by God. So it was a big experience to have at 18 and it completely changed the direction of my life. And I'll, I'll put out the caveat that no drugs were involved in this event. Well, I gather that uh, breakthroughs of that sort, where, where you have this powerful sense of ecstasy, can also be accompanied by uh, the opposite at some point, a feeling of loss, well, loneliness, depression. That was the, I mean, not to dwell on that experience, but that was the beginning of it. Everything that led up to the moment of me seeing that cloud and crying out was dark and depressing. And I had been talking to my roommate about my family and other things that made me suddenly look differently at everything I could remember about my life and thinking, it's terrible. It's a mess. And I didn't even know it. So it was a descent. And it was absolutely essential for that to happen, for the tension to build up in me enough for something that I would likened to the transcendent function Jung talks about to happen. One of the uh, people you quote in your book and who wrote a, a very lovely uh, comment in the introduction of your book is my friend Paul Levy, who uh, has been on this program a number of times. And he describes his own alchemical path, which uh, was very dark indeed. It, uh, you know, led to him being um, incarcerated in jail. It led to him being put into the hands of psychiatrists and uh, uh, mental uh, hospital abuse. Uh, and he recovered from that. Uh, but I'm under the impression, as I read through your book on the alchemy of stones, and I certainly want to talk more about stones, but that uh, there were many, many breakthroughs in, in your long life. And 
oftentimes the breakthroughs were followed by uh, what you might call the opposite, a kind of a breakdown. Well, that's true too, uh, and it's a, it's a good thing to bring up, and 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 you bring it up in the context of mentioning Paul Levy, who's a friend of mine as well. Um, you know, Paul has told me about his awakening experience, which led to the incarceration and the being put in a mental hospital because he talked too much to the wrong people about what he was seeing and feeling, which was actually a great expansion and elation um, and a feeling of gnosis, of understanding things about the world that other people didn't and that he hadn't. Um, that's like mine, too. And I'm, I'm fortunate, I guess, that I didn't get dealt the hand he did. But nonetheless, um, both he and I have the sense that there are, there's, you might say, an agency or uh, uh, archetypal entities, you know, he names them Watiko, which um, uses the Native American term, which tend to attempt to limit the transcendent expansion that human beings undergo or keep us from even ever getting there. Um, now, whether that's a part of our psyche or something outside of it, I think is an un unknown question at the moment. But I do see that, you know, I used to call them the limiters. Robert Bly, the poet, who's my mentor, um, used to say, um, there's some beings in the universe that don't like people to expand. And they're called the limiters. And um, they'll come around as soon as you make a breakthrough and make you hurt your back or get in a car accident or, you know, he said it in his own humorous way, but it meant the same thing. Another interesting thing you point out in, in your book, because of your lifelong fascination with gems and minerals and, and stones, uh, you point out that many people have uh, an attitude about that. They think it's kind of flaky, new agey. Uh, I'll admit, I love minerals and stones. I truly do. But I had a bit of an attitude my, myself about uh, the way in which they uh, are used in the New Age culture. Uh, and, and I think you've learned uh, along the way that you have to be careful who you discuss it with. Well, yes. I mean, and how you discuss it, depending on who you're discussing it with. You know, one thing that's happened with me is I've the experience I had with Moldavite changed me from a skeptic to a Gnostic in regards to stones, meaning it changed me from not from disbelieving to knowing that stone energies are a real thing because they were so dramatically present for me. And I went in that day from the Moldavite experience that I mentioned from a uh, not feeling any stone energies and thinking the people who came into my jewelry shop and said they could, I thought they were flaky. I thought, wow, you know, what's this? But then it happened to me. And th that day that the first opening occurred, I went into my shop and I could feel every stone in the store. Um, so then I knew what these people had been talking about. And that's 35 years ago. I've been in this trade in this world of stones and people for that whole time. And I've been present many times when people get surprised in the same way I did by their first sensation of energy in, from a stone in their hand. Um, and I'm, you know, I have many, many examples of powerful experiences they had, not just that they felt something. 
So this said to me, Robert, there's a reality here that's a phenomenon that's really happening in the world. And since it's a real thing happening and you're settled on that, then try to understand it. And that's what kind of led me eventually into spiritual alchemy, because spiritual alchemy partakes of the idea of subtle bodies, the subtle realm, the realm of the overlap that Novalis talked about. And because stone energies have never been measured, and I don't think they ever will be, except by people's experience, I tend to say that that means they are in that subtle realm and affect us in what we would call our subtle body and actually even make us aware of the existence of our subtle body. So, you know, that's the, when I put a stone in someone's hand, if they're a disbeliever, I just say, just hold this, hold this up to your heart. Tell me if you feel anything or not. And I watch to see what happens. I don't tell them what they should feel and so forth. And, you know, over 35 years, uh, I've seen it many, many times. Even if it was simply because people have faith in the stone, you write about the placebo effect, one of the most powerful effects in all of medicine and very much related to the concept of the imaginal that we uh, talked about earlier. Uh, stones needn't even have an intrinsic value uh, in order to have a profound psychological effect on people. Right. And there's that's a very important question to contemplate whether people, you know, in a sense, make it up or whether they meet something there in that subtle realm. And I fall on the side of thinking they do meet something there in that subtle realm. And I, in a, I attempt in my book to explain that by looking at the idea of panpsychism. You know, panpsychism, and I know you've had people on your show speaking about it, um, is um, basically says to me that the idea is that all matter partakes of consciousness um, and or is experiences consciousness or, as Jung said, that that psyche and matter are not in any way separate from one another. They're two aspects of one and the same thing. So once you start looking at it that way. You can do what the ancients did and what the shamans do, you know, and the animistic people have done for many years and imagine that you're meeting a self when you see an object. Then you can open up to that meditatively with a stone or whatever you want. And you can see if you experience the other, the other, the object or whatever as another being, you know, part of what I've done is gone further in gone ahead and had those experiences too. And those are the bases for how I talk about what stone energies mean in my books. Well, when I was 12, 13 years old, I built a crystal radio. I got a little kit. I think it used germanium. But uh, I, at that point, I learned very clearly that there are frequencies and vibrations associated with different crystals. That's really true. And the, I built one of those crystal radios too. It was, I built it over and over again. I love that thing. Um, but, uh, you know, that's an analogy or an, an analog, I should say. And it's like an analog to what they are, in my view, doing in that subtle imaginal realm, meaning that a crystal is used in a crystal radio because it transmits the frequencies very faithfully. You can count on the quartz in your watch to vibrate at just the same rate for here to eternity. And that's a particular property of crystals. 
um, you know, um, one of the things I'll just say here in terms of attempting to make my case a little for this um, panpsychic view of stones, um, Rupert Sheldrake wrote that um, uh, the life of a crystal is different uh, in degree, but not in kind uh, from the life of an organism. Um, so I, I like what he said about that. You know, and on Tesla also said, Nikola Tesla also said that in the life of a crystal, we see, in a crystal, we see a formative life pr principle. And although we don't, aren't able to imagine what the life of a crystal may be, it's nonetheless a living being. I interviewed uh, my friend, the philosopher Christian De Quincey, about panpsychism. And uh, I began asking him, as a matter of fact, with regard to objects I have in my studio. You can't see it right now, but it is next to me. I can see it. It's a sculpture from Zimbabwe made out of soapstone. And I asked him, well, is, is this sculpture conscious? And he, he brought up the distinction uh, between what he called heaps and holes. And many stones uh, are, are what he would call heaps. They're like um, granite. They're a conglomeration of different stones. They're not a single crystal. Uh, so he, he sort of gave me the impression that Consciousness to a panpsychist is associated with holes, not with heaps. Yeah, it's interesting. I saw that interview and um, found that distinction interesting. Um, one thing I would say about it, just from my point of view, is it's easy to understand and relate with holes, at least in your imagination. You can say, well, it makes sense. I can relate with something that has consciousness as a whole. And yet, there are all these heaps. Now, one of the things is, is that the heaps, like the sculpture that um, he's talking about that you have there, um, is um, composed of, on the molecular level, a multitude of crystalline objects, of crystalline components. So, you know, all those different minerals that are in a boulder or maybe in the sculpture are still on, their, on the micro level, they're all crystals. So uh, there is that consideration. Um, and yet I'd also say that just phenomenologically, um, I can't really make the distinction in experience that he makes in philosophy about heaps and holes with these things. Um, if you look again to indigenous peoples, shamanic people, and all the animistic ideas, if you don't throw those out as fantasy, then they're not drawing a distinction like that. And even like the piece of Moldavite that I mentioned earlier that I'm wearing, it's kind of really a heap because even though it's crystalline looking, if you hold it up to the light, it's transparent and green, um, it's glass because it was formed in this collision of a meteor with the earth and that formed a glassy substance, which is what Moldavite is. And again, watching the experience of things, Moldavite is one of the things that most people who are sensitive at all to stone energies can feel. It's notorious for being like, whoa, I don't know if I can even hold that one to those people. How interesting. Uh, as a parapsychologist, Robert, I often think about um, people's 
focused intention as being really crucial. And you can use a pencil to focus your attention and then you can do arithmetic that's harder to do without a pencil. And I, I think of stones the way I would use them, uh, sort of like that. Uh, they help me focus my attention and, and the, the, the power comes from within me. In, in that regard, I know, for example, that in, in your work, you use stones quite a bit for healing. And I tend to think that, uh, for example, placing a stone over a picture, a particular stone that you, you feel has certain properties over the picture of yourself or another person, it's like lighting a candle for other people. It helps focus your attention. Yes. I mean, there is that, and that's a real thing. Now, I take it a step further in this alchemical idea because alchemists were not attempting to be objective the way that scientists are in our world today. Alchemists had an agenda. They wanted to accomplish the union of spirit and matter, and that's how I view the Philosopher's Stone. It's matter with its full divinity awakened in it, which makes it then a miraculous substance when you talk about it as a physical thing. You can also view the Philosopher's Stone as an awakened psyche or awakened consciousness. Um, and so, in this idea that Novalis spoke of, of the seed of the soul being the overlap of the inner world and the outer world, that assumes that the outer world has an interiority where we can meet it. And it is meeting in the world interiority that I think we do when we meditate with the stone. And uh, don't attempt to sit outside the experience and see whether it is objectively real, because in a way we sabotage the experience by doing that. Committing ourselves to an experience of this meeting of the inner and the outer, and that doesn't have to be with the stone. You know, the shamans, are, when asked um, by Jeremy Narby, who wrote The Cosmic Serpent, when, they, when, they, when, they, when he asked them, how do you know which stones to use as remedies for different illnesses? The shamans invariably said, the plants tell us. And that also, I want to take, take that to Paracelsus, one of the most famous of all the alchemists, who said that the way to discern a remedy was to enter into astral sympathy with the astral nature of the substance, whether it was a plant or a metal or a mineral, and discern or attempt to actually overhear its qualities. So that struck me as almost the identical thing to what the shamans said they do. And it is what I try to do when I meditate with a stone about what are its qualities. You mentioned using them for healing. Um, I don't focus on physical healing because it's an area where you wouldn't want to be making a lot of mistakes. But I view it as a chicken soup thing where if you don't forego other things and you add stones to it, it can't hurt and it might help. Um, so I try to listen and overhear the stone's qualities for emotional, spiritual, and physical support that it wants to offer. And of course, I have to accept the things that come to me in that imaginal space as something worth writing down and testing and trying out myself and with others. Um, but I don't disqualify it or just ascribe it to being, it's my intention. At the same time, I'll say that in my book, I do talk about the three human powers that are essential to spiritual alchemy, which are attention, intention, and imagination. 
we need to use all of those three consciously and fully for the experiences to unfold in their fullness and, you know, for everything else that alchemy aims at to happen. Our mutual friend, Paul Levy, talks about uh, awakening from the dream or awakening in the dream. Coming to realize that our everyday life actually is no different than our dream life. And in the sense that uh, in a dream, we know that every aspect of the dream is really part of ourselves, part of our psyche. The whole dream is in our psyche. And uh, in talking to Paul, I came to the understanding that the same is true of waking life. Mm-hmm. Again, I mean, my way, of, my take on that, I agree with you completely. And Paul calls it the dreamlike nature of reality. Um, at least that's one of his phrases. Um, so what does that mean? You know, to me, in my dreams, what is unfolding is meaning. And it's meaning that is displaying my psyche to me, the dreamer, and maybe the person who wakes up. And, and many times the elements of a dream are symbolic. And just as an aside, when I meditate with a stone about its qualities, I'll often be, see images that are symbolic of the qualities rather than hearing a message in words. But on to this thing about the dreamlike nature of reality, um, you know, the alchemists were viewing it that way too. That's why all their diagrams were full of symbols, and the symbols were meant to convey the unseen side of the reality that they viewed as one thing with the outer world. So, you know, Marie-Louise von Franz in the quote that I use in my book a few times says that um, uh, the alchemical point of view of an individuated person doesn't focus on material or spiritual, but on the imaginal or on the imaginal perspective, which contains both the material and the spiritual. And she says, this gives the person the freedom that perceiving symbolically bestows. So to me, that's a fantastic phrase. To perceive life symbolically bestows freedom on the person. And through that, we see the dreamlike nature of a reality. If we're perceiving reality symbolically, we, we are perceiving it as dreamlike. And in this place, that's where I think the whole of alchemy has uh, a very valuable place in our world if we want to understand our world in a, in a perspective that gives us something more than what materialism does. So, you know, I could go on with that, but that might be enough. I'd like to get into some of the more magical aspects of your work. You uh, refer to a, uh, a stone, I think it's called Azaz Tulite. Uh, maybe I'm yes. mispronouncing it. I call it Azestulite. You're pretty close. Azestulite. And, and the, the story of how you came to understand this stone includes some uh, apports. It includes uh, some mediumistic or channeling communication with, with beings not of this earth. Uh, 
it, it's very far out material. It's, I'm sure some of our uh, viewers may think that it's a complete nonsense, but I, I'm sure we have many viewers who will understand maybe there's a deeper essence going on here, a, a wider reality in which we're embedded uh, that, that's part of this story. So could, could you talk about the uh, development of, of the Azestulite? Absolutely, sure. Um, and this happened in the early 90s. I'd only been involved in crystals about five years um, and minerals and their energies and all that. But one of my friends who was a co-writer of my book, The Book of Stones, Naisha Azian, she was well into it and was able to channel quite a lot, um, not only about stones. So I went to her often for information when I was trying to see, you know, what can I say about a spiritual quality of a stone? Because I wasn't doing that myself then. And one day she spontaneously called me and said, I've been channeling some a new an, an angelic group soul entity, and this group soul says it serves the light of the great central sun, which it calls Azez. And the group soul, this angelic being, calls itself Azez and says that it's here to help bring light to the earth and bring a transformation to the earth. And I mean, it seemed very far out to me too. Um, but nonetheless, uh, she said, you're supposed to have the Azestulite stone and bring it out to people. And it's going to come to you uh, from somebody that you don't know. That's what they've told me, she said. So um, I thought, great, if it happens, you know, I'll take it on, but it's, it's pretty far out. It did happen. Um, and an interesting little sidelight to that is the same time she, the same week she called me with that message, I had a big phenakite stone, which is a very high vibration stone in our world of stones, and expensive on my desk. And a friend called me up and wanted to buy it, so I went to my desk to get it to ship it to her the next day, and I wasn't there, and I was pretty sure it was always right in that spot. So we started opening up everything and trying to find out where that stone go. Um, it was expensive. I liked it. My friend wanted it. Um, I couldn't find it. Meanwhile, every week, Naisha would call me up and say, uh, did you get the Azestulite yet? Did it arrive? Because she was completely convinced this was happening. Um, every week, I said no. The third week, I said, you know, no, but I've lost something. Can you try to help me find it psychically? And she said what? And I told her about the phenakite. She said the next day she called and she said, well, I talked to the Azez about this, and they told me that they've borrowed your phenakite and that they're using its energy to complete the activation of this new stone, Azestulite, and that when they will give you back your stone and you'll find it in a box in a strange place. And that was the message. So a few more weeks went by, nothing really new happened. Then a package of stones arrived from a stranger. He had seen one of our ads and he had these stones that he thought were phenakite that he had dug 25 years ago and kept in his garage. He sent them to me saying, I think these are for you. They're phenakites. I want X dollars for it, which was a lot. Um, and I tested them and they weren't phenakite. They were quartz of a kind. So, but I had Naisha come and look at them and she felt them and said, oh, that's the Azestulite. You have to buy it. That all occurred. It did have a lot of energy subjectively to me and a lot of people that touched it. Um, and then um, one day, just a few days after the box came, 
I reached under my desk to get my messages out of my message box, which I kept under my desk and my phone messages. And there in this very small little box was the big piece of phenakite, almost as big as the inside of the box. And I certainly hadn't had it there because I was in that box every day. So somehow it got there. And um, Naisha said to me, well, the Azez say, did you get the message? Um, by the fact that that's where they put the stone. The other thing that happened that you might call an apport is that next day or two after that, walking down the steps out of our building, I found a stone on one of the wooden steps. And it was the same stuff that was in that box. It was a piece of azestulite and bigger, bigger than any of the pieces that had come in the mail. And again, I asked Naisha because I was pretty captivated by this story by then. And she said, when she got back to me, she said, the Azez say that's interest on the loan of your phenakite. So that was the introduction of Azez Chilite. Subsequently, many, many people have touched it. Um, there, there are people who think it's nonsense. There are people who are so moved by what they feel that they cry. That happens even here in New Zealand in my shop here. I mean, I've, I've seen it hundreds of times. Um, and many times it's people, even not, you know, sometimes it's people who actively disbelieve who then feel it. So, again, it's all anecdotal evidence. I don't expect any scientist to buy into what I'm saying. But nonetheless, these things happened. Well, what I love about that story is that it does defy logical explanation. And uh, yeah, I have no doubt that of your sincerity uh, in sharing that story with me and our viewers. And I think uh, ultimately the lesson for all of us is that the universe is much larger than we humans normally conceive it to be. I agree completely. And you know, it is, we've really created ourselves this worldview that's kind of like the inside of a box or the inside of an egg in which we feel like we know what reality is and it makes us feel secure and safe and like we're in control. But there are so many things outside of that box or that egg that are not only beyond logic but are actually um, have a numinous and divine quality to them that would nourish something that I think is missing in our inner lives and a lot of us know that and feel it. So the purpose of my life is to break open the box and show people that there's something outside. Well, Robert Simmons, this has been a delightful conversation. I'm very happy to be able to share your experiences with the New Thinking Aloud audience. And I encourage our viewers to take a look at your book, The Alchemy of Stones. I think uh, there's a lot of depth there. And I'm very grateful uh, to have this conversation with you, Robert. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you for the opportunity, Jeffrey. This is the program I wanted to speak on because I respect so much what you've done for many years. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.